Well, good morning and welcome to October. If you walked out of your home this morning and the enamel on your teeth didn't melt, then you know that you're in the fall in East Texas, and so welcome to it. My name's Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church, and you have come to the nine o'clock service, and so we thank you for doing exactly that. I want to start off as we transition from our worship in corporate context, I want to transition through a a brief season of prayer. I just want us to be still and quiet and pause before the Lord. And as the book of Hebrews implores us and invites us to approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. One of the privileges and honors that I get to have as a pastor is just to, to hear stories of what's going on in people's lives and their relationships with their situations, with health, finance, whatever it might be. And so as we worship, I, I think it would be uh, appropriate for all of us to pause and ask the Lord to reset our hearts, affections, our minds, attentions, our bodies' intentions to worship. So I'm going to ask you to bow with me in prayer. And we're just going to be silent for a moment. It's going to be quiet. And there, right there, when all the temptation rushes in for you to get distracted and think about football or food or family or friends or whatever else, I want you to think about Jesus. I want you to think about Jesus, and I want you to think about what Jesus thinks about you. Because he knows your need, your greed. He knows your happiness. He knows your hatred, your ambition, your anger, your fears and insecurities even better than you do. And he loves you. So Father, as we try to still our hearts and minds, would you by your spirit present, would you lead us into clarity, into openness, to availability and accessibility, that the teaching of your word, the preaching of your text would change us. There are many, God, we know that are hurting, that are struggling with fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and anxieties, insecurities. Would you remind them in this moment that you are more than enough? Would you remove any distraction and the sin that so easily entangles that we would, by faith, hear your word and by hearing, have faith? So, Father, we commit this time to you. You are the one that must go before us and lead us and love us and guide us and guard us. So do so as your people, in your word, by your spirit. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, we are in a sermon series this fall in the book of Joshua, Old Testament narrative Joshua. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn there. The book of Joshua, right after the Pentateuch, right after Torah. We've said this a time or three, but I want to say it again and again. Old Testament narrative in particular is a declaration by God about God. Old Testament narrative stories is God saying something really powerful and very pertinent about himself. One of the things that's really fascinating that I've always been intrigued by and interested in is how much God seems to love the land. 
God digs the diggable, you might say. It's often not what I think about when I think about God. In my, in my fallenness and in my sort of uh, lethargy and apathy, I tend still to have that very broken, wrong, cartoonish picture or image or idea of God where he's seated up in the, in the heavenlies and he's up there and he's just disinterested and he's busy and he's maybe a little bit old and cranky and tired and occasionally ornery. That's not God. That's a far side cartoon. Our God, Yahweh, the creator of the cosmos cares intimately and particularly about a very small patch of land in the Near East. I'll be very clear, that land that we today call Israel is not magical. It is not magical, but it is apparently special to our God. In fact, I would contend that all of the physical material creation that we can discern and detect in our limited technological understanding, billions of light years in every direction, that the center of it all is that little speck of dirt on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. God cares about that land. He has always wanted a place where people made in his image, created to be like him in so very many ways, could actually dwell and experience and enjoy him but the land continues to be disrespected and misused. Now, the land, we have to understand, is not just some geologic accident in that part of the world. The land itself is a character in our scriptures. Both testaments. In the Old Testament, we have the psalmists, and they will talk about the, the topography and the geography. And they will talk about way, way, way up in the north, at the very border of Israel, in the very far north, is Mount Hermon or Mount Hermon. And, and they'll talk about the blessings of God fall like the snow on the mountain, pure, spotless, holy, and sustaining. That's the blessing. And it's pure, and it's innocent, and it's right, and it's good. And as those snows begin to melt, the waters flow south, and they form the headwaters of the Jordan River. Yardan in Hebrew is, he goes down, is what it means, it descends. In some places, the Jordan River falls about 40 feet per mile. Once it passes the Sea of Galilee, it falls about nine feet per mile. So it's flowing north to south. After it goes through the lake that we call the Sea of Galilee, well, it's interesting. The, the waters go through a city called Adam, interestingly, and that's where the waters begin to become polluted dirtied and muddied. They fall pure from God. They, they fall like the snows and, they're, and they're, they're good and there's a holding time, but then they flow through Adam and the waters begin to go down and down. And all along, once they pass through Adam, the waters get more polluted and more polluted until finally they go all the way south, about 30 miles, and they end up at what's called the Salt Sea, or we say the Dead Sea. Because of all that pollution, all that stagnation, and there is no outlet, nothing can grow. There is nothing but death. And so the land has been sort of representative of man in his best efforts can only ever create separation from God. And so the Jordan River, it's not the Amazon, it's not the Nile, but it is a significant ribbon of moisture and a very significant portion of land to God. The Jordan River's always sort of represented that side and this side. The other side in the time of Christ was called Perea or Transjordan, and Jesus spent a lot of time on the eastern side. But it always represented sort of the place of God's blessing and abundance in Israel, 
And then the other side where people were trying to go it alone. Jesus spent a lot of time over there. It was a very significant moment, a monumental moment in the life of Christ when he crossed Jordan and was baptized, entered into the very pollutants that separate God from man, you might say metaphorically. But 1,500 years earlier, Israel, the Son of God, also had to cross Jordan in a monumental moment for them. That's what we're going to look at this morning. It's also going to be our big idea for the morning. In Joshua chapter 3, we're going to tackle the entire chapter. Our big idea goes like this. Cross Jordan. Cross Jordan. That is not, as Stephanie mentioned earlier, my invitation to tell you to die in your chair. Not what we're talking about. Oh, it's something way more challenging and harder, we might even say. So we're talking about crossing the Jordan. Now, just a very quick recap to get you oriented where we are in the book of Joshua chapter three. In the beginning, God, and God created the heavens and the earth. And, and it was perfect. It was awesome. And he placed Adam and Eve in the garden and he called it very good. And God walked with them in the cool of the day. And he so looked forward to their times together. Do you know that about your God? Do you understand that? That he looked forward to being with Adam and Eve. That blows the mind. And then they said he wasn't enough. And that bruises the soul. And so the garden is veiled and it's gone. And so man begins this now process of trying to eke and seek his way back to relationship with God by any means necessary, by any means available, except for the one that God himself offers. And violence grows in the land until finally God has to bring a baptism and he judges the whole world, but he creates a safe space with a man named Noah and he brings in a remnant and those people are saved. And a lot of animals made it onto the ark. You know what else made it onto the ark? Sin. And so very quickly, they get off the ark and they begin to populate the land and they decide, you know what? We can come together and we, as a group of people, can figure out how to legislate and administrate righteousness on our own. (laughs) How'd that work out for them? God said, no. God said, instead, I'm gonna create an entire nation out of nothing. I'm gonna get this Babylonian moon worshiper with a barren wife and I'm gonna trot him over to this land because I like this land. How come? I like this land. But why? Because I like this land. It's the same reason my parents prefer me to my brother. I don't know why. They just do. They just do. It's just gospel, okay, Steve? Handle it. God likes that land. And so he trots Abraham all over and says, I'm starting a new nation. And this is going to be the place where I give you land and offspring and blessing. And it goes pretty good for about two generations. And then they find themselves in Egypt for four centuries experiencing separation and death. Moses leads them out of Egypt, being led himself by the presence of God. They cross the Red Sea and they're just about to go into the land. They're right there. They can smell the date, honey. They can see all the pastures, all the livestock. And they send in 12 spies and 10 of them come back and go, oh no, God's cool and all that. And that Red Sea deal, whoa, that was neat. But those people are tall. We, we can't hack it. And Caleb and Joshua say, no, we can take them. Let me at them. And they don't trust God. And so they take laps in the wilderness for 40 years. They're not lost. They know exactly where they are. And everyone around there knows exactly where they are. Finally, Moses dies. He passes the mantle to Joshua. God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. The captains and the lieutenants of the people of Israel say, Joshua, we're with you. It's go time. Let's do this. Joshua says, I got one more quick little errand. And he sends a couple spies into Jericho for the 
specific, precise purpose of finding Rahab, a prostitute, and creating for himself in that context someone who asks for deliverance because she confesses that Yahweh is God. Now we come back to chapter three, verse one, that picks up really where chapter one leaves off. There's a very seamless connection to chapter three. So we're gonna walk through this very briefly. Now we've gotten all the way to Joshua chapter three, beginning in verse one. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. It's go time. They have been camped at a place called Shatim, which is the Acacia Grove. It's a wilderness, a harsh, barren land. Acacia trees are kind of like mesquite trees that you might see in West Texas. He rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shatim, and they came to the Jordan. Now, there's some interesting timings that are happening here, and forests of trees have been felled, creating the paper that people have written arguments and discussions and debates on. What three days is this? Is this the three days that mentioned back in chapter one? Is this a contiguous three days, like an additional three days? Is it a concurrent three days? Get a job. It doesn't matter. The text doesn't say exactly very clearly. It doesn't really matter. I tend to take it that it's a concurrent three days, that it takes one day for them to move from the acacia grove to the river, a day to prepare, and then a day to start moving. People disagree with me. That's okay. You can disagree with me on that. One day you'll die and you'll know better. For now, we're just going to say that it's these three days. It is an interesting time period, though, these three days of preparation. There is this recurring biblical theme of three days, of three days, of three days. Surely that's just a coincidence. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. There's a whole lot of coordination and communication that has to happen when you're dealing with a couple hundred people, a few thousand people, and certainly in this case, at least a few million people. That is a lot of logistics and administrivia. Verse two, at the end of the three days, the officers went through the camp. So you're getting a little zoom out, zoom in, zoom out, zoom in. Probably each tribe was represented uh, and each clan was represented by somebody. Uh, Joshua had learned to do delegation through Moses. Moses had learned that through his father-in-law, Jethro. Don't try to do it all yourself. Break it out and delegate. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Follow that box. Now we're given this little mention of the Ark of the Covenant. We need to talk about that for just a moment. They knew precisely what it was. But in the wilderness, as God would lead them around, around through the tabernacle, God was very clearly and evidently present by a pillar of fire at night, a pillar of cloud during the day. It's very obvious where he was. That's no longer how he is showing himself. Now he's going to demonstrate his presence by this thing, this box called the Ark of the Covenant, and it's very significant. It's a box that God had them make back in Exodus. It's about four and a half feet long. It's about two and a half feet wide, about two and a half feet tall. And it's completely covered in gold in and out. So it was actually pretty heavy. It had rings run down the side so that the priests could run poles through there and carry it without touching it. The the top of it, what the New Testament will call the hilasterion, the mercy seat, the top of it, the lid, actually has two forged uh, golden cherub. Now, Now, when I say cherubs, I don't mean those fluffy little Raphael angels in diapers. That's not a cherub. Uh, Satan, Lucifer, was a cherub. There's some seriously serious beings. And they're over the ark on the lid, and their wings are coming together almost touching. And that's supposed to represent the very throne of the presence of God on earth. 
It's also called the mercy seat because every year on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would hold an animal and place all of the sin of thought, word, deed, commission, omission of all the people on this innocent animal. And then he would kill that animal, drain its blood, and sprinkle it on that mercy seat. And so God would see the innocent blood in place of the guilty, and he would receive it. Because inside this ark, well, those were the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. But we have to understand what's going on here. Two tablets, but we have a tendency because of, thank you very much, Charlton Heston and Cecil B. DeMille, in the movie, The Ten Commandments, we assume that it's five and five. Incorrect. The Ten Commandments is what historians will call a suzerain vassal treaty. It's two copies of the same thing. On each stone tablet, you have one through 10. On this one, you have one through 10. How come? Because here was the custom. When a king conquered a people, you entered into this covenantal relationship and the king kept a copy for himself and then he went his way. And the conquered people, they kept a copy for themselves and they go their way. And everybody has their own copy. But what God says, I want you strangely and surprisingly to put both copies in the box a very emphatic way of telling them in a way that they would have understood, not so much us, I'm not leaving you. I'm your sovereign, but I love you. And what I want more than anything else is not to populate Mars, is not to slightly warm up Pluto. I want to hang out with you in Canaan. I'm going with you. So I'm putting my copy in the box. You put your copy in the box and we're going to be together. Now, do you think of God when you think of God like that? We're invited to. Not only that, there's a jar of manna in the, in the ark. This is demonstrating God's power and his provision. Aaron's rod is in the ark to demonstrate his power and his affirmation of the priestly people. Hebrews chapter nine, verse four, says that all these things were in the ark. Aaron's rod, well, that's kind of significant because there was a rebellion back in Moses' day and a group of people named the Korahites, there were the followers of a guy named Korah, said, hey, Aaron, we don't like you as our priest. We wanna be priests. God says, hold it. Everyone bring your rods, your staffs. Throw them down. They all do. Aaron's begins to bud and then flower and then produce almonds. Now that's a tip-off. And so that staff is there to say that God still affirms his process, his priestly people. Now, somewhere in Kings, we're told that the, the manna and the rod were actually carried alongside. And then once they would stop, they would put those things in the box. Doesn't really matter. Those are the three things that God would look at and say, my people have violated, but there is innocent blood in place of the guilty. And so God says, I want you to move this ark and the people are going to have to follow. Always a good idea. Verse three, they commanded the people, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits or 1,000 yards. So a little more than half a mile. Keep your distance. No, this is not because of raiders of the lost ark and the melting faces of the Nazis. There, there are some passages where you don't want to take the ark lightly. Of course, we'll find out about 500 years later, a dude named Uzzah goes, oh, I got this. And then Uzzah, it's like the greatest bug zapper moment of all time. There's something else going on with Uzzah. They had forgotten the ways of Yahweh and they had grown casual and comfortable and they tried to make him user-friendly and they were not reverent. This is not that. 
In fact, the text is very explicit why the ark is to have this really wide space around them. There shall be a distance between you and it about a thousand yards in length. Do not come near it. Why? In order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. You've never come into the land of blessing. You've been wandering in your own discipline and consequent for four decades, so much so that an entire generation has died off. You've never entered into my blessing. But after 500 or so years, it's go time. I'm finally going to have my children, my people back in the land. But I want that ark to be so far out front and so far surrounded by space that everybody can see it. We're talking a couple million people here at least. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And here's one of the central ideas. Consecrate yourselves. The idea is make yourself ready in a priestly fashion. This is a call back to Exodus chapter 19 when God, present on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, calls Moses up and tells him to have all the people, all the people come up. I want all the people to be a nation of priests for me. They will represent me. They will mediate on my behalf to the rest of the world. Call them all up. Have them consecrate themselves. Do the priestly performance of washing yourself, washing your clothes, abstaining from physical intimate relations because I want you focused single-mindedly. Now, back in Exodus 19, God called them all up and they all went, yeah, no, no, we don't want to do that. That's scary. That's sort of an inconvenience and interruption. And ye, God, you're scary. Moses, you do it. And God says, fine, Moses, get up here, but I will have my people be priestly. Now, God tells Joshua to tell these people to consecrate yourself. Can I just remind you, water is not a super abundant resource out on the other side of the Jordan where they are. Now, they're near the Jordan River, but this is going to take some time. He wants them to consecrate themselves. This is one of those significantly important things for us to understand. We're going to find out in a, later, a little bit later how important the timing of this crossing is. And you're supposed to start getting the idea, hey, wait a sec, I think I've seen something like this before. This reminds me of Moses leading the children of Israel across the Red Sea. Correct, but it's different. They're similar, but very significantly different. In the crossing of the Red Sea, they are escaping Egypt. They are being pursued. It is, in a sense, a salvation experience. They're coming out of death and bondage, through death and being led into life. Notice that when they cross the Red Sea, Moses doesn't say, hmm, I believe those are Egyptian chariots and spears. Let's all stop and wash our clothes and nobody go in and have relations. He doesn't do that. He goes, y'all go! Because those are Egyptian chariots. There's no consecration. There's no priestly preparation. It is a salvation experience. It is their conversion. But here at the crossing of the Jordan, it's different. They're going to enter into the land. This is their consecration experience. I would argue their sanctification. They're not escaping anything. They've been walking around simmering in their own grease under the, the indignation, the punishment of God, the discipline of God. Now they're going to go in. So it's time to prepare. Consecration and sanctification. Go in and take what God has given you 
Enter in. You are already converted. You are saved. Now go in and do what God is leading you to do as a representative ambassador of his ministry. I'm not saying it will be easy. But prepare yourselves. Why? Prepare yourselves. Get rid of all distractions, all competitive influences so that you can see the presence of God. Do you, do you see how this has immediate impact on our lives? Focus your hearts, focus your minds, focus your body so that you can see God and follow where he goes because you've never gone where he's going. Again, verse six, Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And so everyone's seeing what's happening as the Levitical priests march on ahead. Verse seven, the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. That's interesting. God tells Joshua, I'm going to exalt you. I'm gonna give you the name that is above all names so that people will know that you are my instrument of salvation. Gosh, that's uh, Philippians 2. Yes, we're seeing a prefiguring of how Jesus is given the name above every name because he is Yeshua. He is God's salvation. God is saying to Joshua, I am setting you up to be the instrument that leads these people into my grace, into my mercy, into my redemption. It's very similar echoing words is what we'll see happen with Jesus that Paul talks about in Philippians 2. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. <laughs> God is vexingly vague. He doesn't tell them, all right, here's what I want you to do, boys. I want you to find a couple pontoon boats, lash them together, and then I need you to get a couple sump pumps and dig out a little trench and you're... No, no, no. We got millions of people we got to get across this deal. Millions. All he tells them is, I want the priests to go stand in the middle of the Jordan. And priests who've got the ark on their shoulder going, uh, hold on a second. I think we need to call an elder meeting about this because this is bad stewardship of resources. Like, this goes bad. That guy, Joshua, by the way, yeah, he's not even a Levite. He's from Ephraim. And his dad's got a funny name. It's Nun. You don't trust a guy whose dad's name is Nun. What in the world? And so things are starting to get a little bit dicey. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And now we're gonna see some amazing literature as the writer of this text mounts and builds the tension. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, verse nine, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. I love this. I love this. Faith comes by hearing. What is Joshua going to do? Hey, boys, I've got a plan. And he unrolls a map. No, he simply says, this is God's word. Listen to this. What we're gonna find out from this, faith is not just obedience in, a, in the midst of a lack of evidence. Hear that again. Faith is not just obedience in the midst of a lack of evidence. Faith is obedience in spite of consequence. Did you hear that? Faith is obedience in spite of perceived or potential consequence. I follow where he leads. I do what he does. I say what he tells me to say. Verse 10, 
And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. Not the dead deities of the Canaanites who would be alive during harvest season and then be dead again and would allegedly come back and bless them and then die again. This is how you shall know that your God is alive and he's active, that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites just so happens to be seven nations of the Canaanites. Joshua says, I know what you're thinking. You've looked over there and you've seen the ites and 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 they're bigger and they're stronger and there's more of them and they're outgunning us. I get it. But this is how you shall know that the living God, the only God is actually with us. Verse 11, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. That's such a great smack talk about all the other non-gods of the Canaanites. By the way, the ark is mentioned like 17 times in chapters three and four because it's all about God's presence moving forward, preparing us to cross Jordan. Verse 11 again, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. That strip of mud and pollution that separates God from man, God himself is going to enter into it willingly, volitionally, intentionally. It's an amazing thing. No other deity would do such a condescending thing. Verse 12. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And what we're going to find out, this is a little bit of a hook that he'll drop. He'll pick it back up in chapter 4. The idea is probably that each tribe has a representative. Somebody grabs a stone from the eastern side of the Jordan, walks into the Jordan and places it, that's where the Levites are going to stand. We think, you'll see more about these stones and what's going to happen with them on the other side once they cross in chapter four. Verse 13, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, in case you've already forgotten, Joshua reminds us, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Now, where does Joshua get that information? All we know that God told Joshua was, had the priest stand in the middle. Joshua says, as soon as a toe hits the water, the water's gonna stop and it's gonna flow north uphill. Well, apparently God did tell Joshua more detail. That conversation is just not recorded for us, and that's okay. That's good for us to know about how we study our Bibles. Not every conversation between God and Moses is recorded. Joshua is not improvising. He's not putting God to the test. He knows that God is going to have these people go across, and God says, I got this. When their feet hit the water, it's gonna happen. And so Joshua explains. When the soles of their feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap in a big, big pile of water. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, I hope you're watching this screenplay happen. This is 2 million people. And if Joshua was wrong, that's a bad bullet on your resume. When two million people suddenly get swept away by a raging river and it's all your fault because then they fish you out of the river and then they throw rocks at your head until you're dead. This is a lot on the line here. But Joshua knows God. Joshua trusts God. Now we need to talk about this Jordan River thing. Verse 15. 
And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. And then we have a little parentheses because it wasn't tense enough for the original readers. We get some explanation and some deepening of the drama. Verse 15. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Ah, now we get a time marker at the time of harvest, not autumn, not fall. We know from chapter four, this is in the Hebrew month of Nisan. This is late March, early April. It is the barley harvest. So the winter snows have fallen on Mount Hermon. They have now begun to do the spring melt. The waters are raging. It's not the little dirty ribbon of water that we see in our day and age. No, no, no. The floodplain of the Jordan River in those days was between one mile and 300 yards. When the, when the Jordan broke, it was at least 300 yards and in some places, one mile wide, more than 12 feet deep, and it's rushing. So, so don't just think some little mud creek out here in Thailand, they just kind of hopped across. Well, that was weird. Here we go. No, 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 no. It's at least 12 feet deep, but maybe a mile wide, but that's not the half of it. It's a river. And so there's all kinds of bramble and brush and jungle and vegetation that's also now underwater. And God says, I want you to ford it as soon as their foot touches the water. Now, if you're a Levite carrying the box and you know that this is the presence of Yahweh, can we just... That's a, it's a big step. They're holding the poles on their shoulders and the first one, that little sandaled pinky toe goes bloop. One of the greatest sounds in human history was the sound of a pinky toe hitting muddy water. Ploop. That's all it was. Just a ploop. The sole of one of their feet hits. Let's watch what happens. Verse 15. As uh, soon as the, those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests be, uh, bearing the ark were dipped in the, uh, the brink of the waters. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. This also puts it 40 years to the day, just about, essentially, we're pretty close of them crossing the Red Sea after Passover, having left Egypt in the month of Nisan. We'll talk about that in chapter four. Verse 16, the waters coming down from above, not out of the sky, but from the north and from a higher elevation, stood and rose up in a heap very far away at, oh, look at there, Adam, a city, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, were completely cut off. All the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now, if you remember, last week we talked about Rahab, and she said, all of our hearts are melting because 40 years ago, we saw and we heard that the Lord, your God, who is God, stopped the Red Sea, and y'all walked across on dry ground. You have to understand a little bit of some, some topography here. The first pinky toe go ploop, and the waters rushed uphill. Adam is 16 miles north of the fords where they cross. And so 16 miles away, the waters scream uphill and they pile up at Adam. Now that's a beautiful image. And by the way, it goes right by the eastern gate of Jericho. You think they didn't see this? Do you think there were some secretions happening within the walls of Jericho? I promise you there was. The water is completely piled up 16 miles to the north and about seven miles to the south, it goes down to the Dead Sea. So 23 miles 
of dry ground. There's no more river. It's very difficult to hide a river. Now, there have been attempts over the years to say, well, let's de-miracle this. It might have been an earthquake or a landslide. Uh Uh-huh, great. Can God superintend natural purposes? Of course he can, but the text is very, very clear. God did this because the ground is completely dry and solid. You don't take wagons and carts and livestock and babies and senior citizens across a marshy, swampy riverbed. The ground is dry and hard, and that's how you move millions of people across a raging river. You just make it like there was no river there. Did you get that? The pollutants between God and man that separate God from fellowship with mankind. How do you, how do you bring people into that community, you, you make it like there's no such thing. Now that's the gospel. Cross Jordan. Some of you still operate as though there's still a separation between you and God. That you've made a mess and it's muddy. Follow your God and cross Jordan. Oh, wait, there's more. Verse 16, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the cities beside Zarethan, and those flowing down towards the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Wow. Now, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground. The text is very emphatic in its literature here to tell us they are firmly standing on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground, in case you forgot, until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. They're going to pass over. This is an incredible, powerful story to remind us of what God did through and with Moses at the crossing of the Red Sea, but it's more than that. And if you get nothing else, I want you to hear this. This is a redemptive recreation story. See, to the Israelite, to the Jew, water always represented chaos and separation and fear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and there was chaos and there was void, but the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and spoke, and the land rose and separated the waters. These people get to see, in a sense, a redemptive recreation narrative right in front of them. Not even Adam and Eve got to see it the first time. They're seeing God is making land out of chaos, order out of chaos, and they are invited to walk in, to cross Jordan, to enter into the promised blessings. Does that mean it will be easy? Oh, no. I love the hymn we sang this morning, but it sort of over-promises and under-delivers our actual experience. There is pain, suffering. There is conflict. There is disease and death. And yet, there's the presence of God. So how do we apply these texts, this passage, to our lives from Joshua 3? Just three very quick implications, and I'll be brief on these. Cross Jordan. First implication goes like this. Shouldn't be a surprise to you. Look at Jesus. This passage is preparing for and pointing to Jesus. Look at Jesus. Yahweh's desire was to be seen by the people so that they could trust him, have faith and courage, and follow where he led. God's greatest desire is that we would rightly and regularly recognize him. 
there's a good chance that our lives aren't going to involve moving internationally and taking over some new plot of territory. Probably not, but it might. More than likely, we walk into a new day each day, and it represents an opportunity to encounter new challenges involving health or family or relationships or finances or whatever. So look at Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of him. Know him. Talk with him. Listen to him. Consider and contemplate. What was he like? What would he do? What would he say? How would he feel about this certain situation? How would he live my life if he was living his life through me? Because, brothers and sisters, he is. Look at Jesus. Trust him to do what he commanded. To slaughter thousands? No, that's not your call. Praise God. No, I would be very, very bad at that. No, that's not what he's calling us to do. Trust him that marital fidelity is best even if it feels like you have a better idea. Trust him. Follow that box. He's leading you into blessing. Doesn't mean it'll be easy. Follow his presence. Trust him that financial propriety is best even if it feels like you could get ahead and win at life and get what you want, even though everyone else is doing it. Now, how has he wanted you and led you and told you and convicted you to steward his resources? Trust him that loving one another and being a part of his body and bride is better for you than going it alone in the world. It's his plan. The local church is God's plan for your life. Trust what he will do. Remember what he has done and keep your eyes on him now. Second point. This might be a little strange, but comes right out of Joshua chapter three. Conquer the land. <laughs> Let me explain. Conquer the land. We are not the people of Israel. We're not a nation. We are the church. And so there's a different emphasis. We're from the future because we are citizens and residents of his coming kingdom. We are to be about establishing his campaign of righteousness here and now, where and when we have influence. We're to be the ones who are willing to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others, not those people who are willing to disadvantage everybody else for our sake. That's what the Bible calls wickedness. The kingdom of God will roll forward and justice and mercy will roll down like a river across the world. It will happen one day. Jesus will come back. Just like the river of Jordan rolled uphill, the righteousness of our Jesus will roll down and cover the earth. When he returns, there will be two realities forever and ever more. Two conditions that will cover the planet. Number one, he will be known. Every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That is an absolute certainty. That is a condition that will cover the cosmos. And so, since we're from the future, we get to make his name known now. Secondly, when he returns, justice will fill the earth. Make no mistake, Jesus will finish what he started and all the world will be set to rights. Every injustice rectified. I was talking with someone just the other day about all these different superhero movies they're watching. They said, you know what? It's just so compelling. We don't really get to see justice meted out in our day and age because everything's been sort of soft and so legislated here and there. But when you see justice, it calls to the eternal. That's exactly right. Justice will be meted out on your enemies and on the enemies of our God. Trust him. Know this. And actively, intentionally, and volitionally arrange and architect your life that you would be a part of setting the world to rights. 
We get to be the preview of coming attractions, not by shouting down our political adversaries, please stop, but by intentionally seeking out and engaging in opportunities to set the world to rights in our little pockets of existence and community. Third point. You're the ark. Did you know it? Did you not know who you are? You're the ark. A lot of movies have made a lot of really big deals about this box. Is it in Israel? Did the Babylonians steal it? Did Indiana Jones really get it hidden in some warehouse in Washington, D.C.? No, 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 no. That's all fiction. Those are all movies. All that was never really the point. The point was that it represented the presence of God and the power of God and the provision of God. He was with his people. The ark was the place where righteousness and justice collided. Innocent blood was spilled to atone for the sin of the guilty all in the power and the presence and the provision of God. And now, having been conquered by grace, we former Girgashites and Jebusites, we are actually indwelled by the Spirit of God. We have his presence. We are the testimonies to his power, to his mercy, to his law, his righteousness, his provision, and his presence. Paul will say it a little bit more crudely than I just did. In the book of Corinthians, he'll talk about that we hold this priceless treasure in chamber pots. That's what we are. So I won't go quite so far. I'll just say you are the ark. You're the box. The intersection of God's judgment and his love occurred at the cross of Christ where the blood of the innocent was shed for the guilty. And now you and I walk around our world sprinkled, as it were, with the mercy of God while being indwelled by the Spirit of God. What a testimony. So let's trust God with what he's told us and be willing to get (laughs) our feet wet. Pray and pray and pray and then walk across the room and just say, hey. Most people trust a Christian before they trust Christ. You're the ark. What if that was true? What if you thought of yourself the way God does? We would cross Jordan Our tendency is to read these Old Testament narratives and try to extract some moral like we're reading one of Aesop's fables. Never, ever the point. Remember, these are a declaration about God by God. These narratives are telling us something about him. And so don't try to put yourself in the story and extract a fable. You're not Joshua. You're not the Levitical priests. No, no, no. You and I actually are in the story. We are the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Perites. We're the Ites. The pagan, Canaanite, godless abominations to the righteousness of God left to our own devices. But then, but then you have this Jesus who in the gospel of Mark goes across the Jordan to the other side and he takes pity and mercy on all the seven cities that are mentioned, these seven nations on the other side of the Jordan who have been expelled from the land. And the disciples think, oh, it's go time, baby. That's in the Greek. It's go time, baby. Jesus, are you going to make a parking lot of this side? Let's wipe them out just like Joshua did because your name's Yeshua and his name was Yeshua. And let's go. And Jesus says, no, I, I, I want you to feed them. I want you to feed them. I take compassion on them. I'm going to heal them. I'm going to love them. I want you to feed them. And guess what? There's going to be seven baskets of food left over after Jesus feeds these 4,000 people. Talk about grace. Talk about mercy. Jesus doesn't come to conquer. He comes to conquer. 
with grace and mercy and love and presence and intimacy. So I compel you, be strong and courageous. The Lord your God is with you. Cross Jordan. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time to spend with our church family. I do pray, God, that you would continue to give us wisdom, courage, and strength to be about your business, that we would be consecrated to be intentionally about your business, following the lead and the love of your son Jesus wherever he goes. And Father, I would be remiss if I didn't also mention there may be some proverbial Girgashites and Hivites present this morning who don't know you, who are outside the commonwealth of Israel, you might say, outside the, the confines of your son Jesus. Would you convince them from the hearing of your word preached, from the presence of your spirit, from the availability and accessibility of your people, that Jesus is the son of the living God, that he takes away their sin and offers his own righteousness in return, that they would step out of death into life, out of darkness into light, and that they themselves would be converted and consecrated. Would you give them courage to speak with someone they know or love or trust about any of these things? For the rest of us, Father, as we'll learn next week, there's no going back across Jordan. You know the plans that you have made for us, plans to prosper and to push us forward. So may we do so with boldness and with courage and with conviction and with love. Together, arm in arm, hands stacked. That is your plan. So pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.